you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. A few days, a few weeks later, about two weeks later, Steve Jobs literally called our office. He's like, hey, it's Steve, what you doing? I want to come over to my house tomorrow. Um, we're like, Steve Jobs is calling us? You know, um, we went and spent three hours or so talking about the future, about technology, landscape, uh, and he made it clear he wanted to buy our company. And we said no. We said thank you very much. We're flattered. Not interested. Goodbye. Today, my guest is Adam Chair. He's an inventor, entrepreneur, engineering executive, and a pioneer in AI and computer-human interfaces. He has been a co-founder of successful startups, including Siri, sold to Apple, Wave Labs, sold to Samsung, and Sentient. He is also founding member of Change.org, the world's largest petition platform. Adam has authored more than 60 publications and 37 patents, and he is also a magician. Hi Adam, welcome to Founders FAQ. My first question is about Founders Core Assets. Founders sometimes do not realize their core assets and the startup needs. What do you suggest for them for the very beginning of their journey to tackle this problem? You know, for me at the beginning, your core assets are the right idea at the right time. So super important and you can have an idea and launch it too early or too late. Um, it's the right team. So you, you have, you need people. Um, and I, I say that for founders, you need four skills in your founding team. You need someone who is a visionary and knows why you're doing what you're doing. You need someone who can translate that vision into step by step. So a product person who can say we're doing this first, this second on our way to the big vision. You need a marketeer um, that can sell the story to investors, customers, and potential employees. Um, and you need a builder who can say, I'm going to deliver this product on time and on on budget. So for me, the the core assets that you have in the beginning are the uh, the idea and the people. And once you raise money, so once you have those two things, you can go raise money from investors, and then your assets are idea, people, and money. <laughs> But the money is quickly diminishing as you spend it. I totally agree to those skills, but on the very beginning, measuring those skills is pretty important. So how co-founders should make their own due diligence before starting a startup and how do they understand they are the good fits? It's the hardest, it's the hardest part because it's like a marriage, you know, it's not easy to get divorced and, you know, it's really hard to know what it's going to like, be like to live with these people and work with these people every day for so many hours. Um, so getting the right co-founders is very difficult. You don't need four different co-founders to clarify my previous previous point. You need co-founders who cover the four skills very well. Mm -hmm. yeah. so I once saw a startup that said, we have four co-founders. They're all designers. I'm like, oh, not a good idea, unless you're covering the four skills as well. Um, so you need complementary people. I think the way you meet them is you... You go to meetups, you use your network, and you need to know what skills you're great at 
um, and always be on the lookout for candidates to meet those complementary skills. In terms of due diligence, it's really hard. When I hire any employee, including a co-founder, I always say, give me a few reasons to want to hire you. should be pretty easy if they've already made it to the interview. And give me no reasons not to. So no red flags. And it's actually harder than it appears um, to be able to have a sustained interaction without revealing red flags mm-hmm. if it's not a good fit. So I'm always looking out for anything that seems kind of troubling. And I want, even if there's one, that makes me quite quite nervous. So I, I always try to hire someone who has a few reasons to want to hire them, no reasons not to. Um, and I, I really trust my, my – and, of course, you get references. You, you know, I, I usually try to use my, my network um, first for co-founders, so people who I've worked with before, because mm-hmm. then I kind of have a much better understanding um, of who they are and what they do and what they're good at. Um, but it's, it's hard. Getting a co-founder, if you don't know them in your network, is a very scary proposition. Yes, finding the right complementary founder will give you a neat start at the beginning, but then you need a scaling A-plus teams as well. So shifting from co-founders to teams, what's the formula to set up and scale A-plus teams? I think for me, the most important is to get that small core of A-plus people. So at the beginning, mm-hmm. before you kind of get into the product phase. I, I usually start with tech companies. So I want the smallest, most top-notch team, you know, and minimal team to do, to have the breakthrough that I need. And so when I start a company, I want, I don't want 20 people right away before I know what I'm doing. I go very, very slowly. I say, what's the, the fewest number of people we can hire? who can make a breakthrough. And only once we've made the technical breakthrough do I start adding on products, all the people you need to bring it to product. Uh, you know, QA, product managers, designers, um, project managers, you know, on and on and on, additional software developers. It's only worth having them if you have a core breakthrough that, that's really important. Um, so, yeah, so I start very small mm-hmm. with a core team as much as possible within my network, um, who I really trust. Only then add. And once you grow to 100 people or what have you, you're not going to – it's rare you're going to have 100 A-plus people. It'll be, it's just a mix. But the key is to get the core – it's like um, it's like having solid skeleton, solid and foundation and bones – if the key people, the key managers, the key technical people are excellent, I think you can make a really good company, even if not every single employee is A+. Plus. You know, you need role players on the team as well, mm-hmm. but you need superstars, and those superstars have to be really, really good. And when you're ready to scale with your top-notch team, you need a VC money to scale. So how things go on there? Yeah, a startup goes through many phases. So in the beginning, when you're fundraising, you need a prototype. And I'm a huge fan of not just coming in with slides and and an idea, 
but actually being able to show investors something real, you know, maybe not scalable, maybe not secure, not productized, but you need a real breakthrough. I think, you know, the germs of a breakthrough that you can show someone uh, and investors early on. Um, so there's a prototype phase, uh, and um, I always want to have something, even in the prototype phase, that can do um, some capability, some important capability, better than any commercial product on the market. Now, it's not full-featured. So when I tell Siri's story, uh, our CEO walked into a room of VCs. He threw down money onto the table. All the VCs sat up a little straighter, and he said, ah, do, do, do any of you have that new smartphone that just came out, the iPhone? Do you have apps on that phone? They're like, yeah, yeah, we have it. Do you have uh, Google on that phone? Yeah, yeah. Can you can you get any information from Google and from apps? I'm like, yeah, great. So see that money on the table? Uh, you have five minutes to answer one question, or ten minutes. Ten minutes to answer one question. And they're like getting their fingers ready. And then he asked a question, and they all put down their phones. So like, there's no way we can do this in ten minutes. And then he pulls out Siri, makes one request, and in 30 seconds, consult. So they came in to the room thinking they can do anything. They have the whole Internet. They have the power of a supercomputer and apps. And then they realize not every problem is solved by that. And, of course, we had a, a prototype that solved a problem that you couldn't do with those things. So that's a prototype phase. So you have to build, there has to be enough technology but and enough realization to show people a real problem. Uh, then you need to get that core team. So now you're a little bigger. You've raised money, you're maybe six people, four people, ten people. And it's in this, you're, you're working very hard, it's blue phase, but you have the best researcher, the best developer in the world in the few areas that you need. So you're pretty independent, they're pretty senior. Um, and then, but over time, you're going to start to add all of the product people, you're going to have hierarchy. Um, and each of these phases is a pretty big transition. And you have to know your strengths. So I come in usually as I'm really good in the prototyping phase, typically, and I can inspire and hire an engineering and technical team. And I can grow that team and lead that team up to a certain size. But I'm not the best project manager, you know, detail micromanager. I'm really good when I'm working with a few really great technical people who are pretty independent, showing them what we're going to do, working with them on how we're going to do it. Um, but once you, we get much larger, I can lead those teams, but it's not my strength. So I try to complement myself with a project manager who's really good at the details and following up on every single detailed item and keeping it all, you know, with a red line schedule. Um, so you really, I think, have to know your strengths. Uh, but every phase is important. You know, we could never have launched Siri with five people. You know, when we launched, we were at Apple, we had 100 people, something like that. Um, and, you know, it requires, you need all of the all of the disciplines and just the sheer number of people to look at every angle and, and make it a good product. And, and so you need to, to help lead that, but when you're not able, when you're, it's not your strength, 
you need to complement your strength with people who can manage some of the details, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great answer to the idea people, they're all around without a solid action and trying to raise money or scale the team. But as you said, you need a solid thing. And you you have founded multiple companies. What was the hardest thing to do on those process? That's a good question. Choosing the right problem is hard. Both of those are technical AI problems. And in AI, you need to do something that's never been done before with a technology company. It has to be magical. It has to be step forward, but it also has to be doable in a limited amount of time. So it needs to be impossible, you know, really ambitious, um, but also doable in a year or two. And getting that right, you know, finding the idea and the technical angle um, that it's really, really hard but not impossible in two years. You know, sometimes you can bite off more than you can chew. Sometimes you can undershoot and, um, you know, not have enough technical. Uh, I'm usually the, the first example. I'll, I'll bite off a little more than I can chew. Um, but, you know, I think, I think both Siri and Viv, we were able to do that quite well and, and that's why I think we were successful startups. We you know we sold to Apple and then to Samsung. Um, both technologies launched from hundreds of millions of devices and users. So um, you know and I think both of them um, you know Siri changed what people thought was possible and what user interaction should be like. And Viv Labs for developers we have uh, not as many people maybe know about what we've done with Viv Labs and, and Bixby, but um, we have given a completely new approach to teaching a conversational assistant new domains, and it's radically different than anything else on the market and unbelievably powerful. And so I'm very proud of, of uh, what we were able to achieve with both companies. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I get it. And founders have tons of questions about the exit, and you both exited Siri and Wheel Labs. So what do you say about the exit? Sure. So with Siri, you know, we uh, worked for two years. We launched a free app in the App Store uh, and launched it, and we were very proud of it. Uh, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, he still says it's his favorite app of all time. Uh, not the version that came out later in the iPhone, but the original Siri app. And, and we, we really built something, I thought, beautiful and powerful, and, and many features in there never made it into the version that people have in their iPhone. So a few days, a few weeks later, about two weeks later, Steve Jobs literally called our office. He's like, hey, Steve, what you doing? I uh, want to come over to my house tomorrow. Um, we're like, Steve Jobs is calling us. You know, um, We went and spent three hours or so talking about the future, about technology, landscape, uh, and he made it clear he wanted to buy our company. And we said no. We said, thank you very much. We're flattered, not interested, goodbye. And we left. Um, and so one of the lessons from that is I tell founders right at the beginning, you should know exactly what you're doing the company for and what your exit 
criteria would be. Are you going to sell? Are you going to IPO? Are you, you know, how much money do each of you need to make? What are your goals at the company? What impact level? You know, you need to have that discussion right at the beginning. So you're all on the same page. It's one of those compatibility things for founders. If someone wants to make, be a billionaire and someone just wants to make, you know, enough money to, to be able to retire, that can create real tension later on because you have com- different goals. So when you start the company, understand what you're doing it for. And when we had that first meeting with Steve Jobs, we didn't even have to look at each other. We didn't have to go like in Shark Tank. Could we take a moment to discuss? None of that. We just said, no, thank you. We're not interested at this point. We're flattered. Thank you. Um, and it was two things. We wanted One was vision. Uh, we wanted someone who really understood and convinced us he understood what we were trying to do and why and how it was important. Uh, and we wanted a certain level of financial uh, achievement. We were all older founders, and we wanted to each be able to say to our families, we will be okay when we retire. And, and we said, that's one thing. If we were to ever exit, we need that. If not, and so we knew what a number was at every single point in time during the company, that we wouldn't sell. You know, if we got over a certain number, we knew what the number was, and if someone understood the full vision and could articulate it and it aligned with what we're trying to do, then we'd consider. If not, we weren't. So on that first day, we didn't have to hesitate. We just said, thank you, we're flattered, goodbye. And then a few months later, two months later, they came back and were able to convince us both that they understood what Siri was, not just a feature, but a fundamental component about every interface that Apple released um, would have a multimodal uh, experience where sometimes you can click or type, sometimes you can ask through voice, but it should be seamless. That that was very important to us. And then also the numbers uh, cross the threshold that, that we would consider it. Um, so that, that, I think, is the most important thing. Be an agreement on what your objectives are from the very first days. What are we trying to do? What would you – if this exit happened, what, what do you want out of the company, basically? What's important to you? Yeah, so that was uh, – that's how we, we sold to Apple. So, you know, it was um, surprising. We were not – the other thing is, in both cases – we were not looking to sell. We were not trying to sell. Um, but we did believe we needed help on distribution. So we had created a great technology, but unless you can get to lots and lots of users, um, it's going to be hard. And as a little startup, getting to hundreds of millions of users is not easy, right, just because of habits. And so for both Siri and for Viv, which sold to Samsung, we were looking for distribution. And um, when we when we sold to Samsung, we were talking with many different companies to say, would you, we've got a game-changing new technology, would you embed it into your uh, devices? And Samsung, I think, has more devices than anyone in the world. Um, and often distribution discussions turn to acquisition discussions from the other um, side, but that should never be your intention to go in these meetings looking to sell. It's, it's that should never be your objective as a, as an entrepreneur. 
I think your story is pretty good and it has some magic and you're a magician as well. So how is it like both being entrepreneur and magician? How they feed each other? So I say a magician and an entrepreneur are exactly the same. Um, so both need to imagine an impossible future, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you just invent something or create something that already exists, no one's going to be impressed. You have to invent something that's ambitious, that seems almost magical. Siri, before it existed, the idea you could just talk to your phone and, and not only ask, uh, but do things across many different domains using a natural conversation seem like magic. It seemed like science fiction. So both a magician and an entrepreneur imagine an impossible future, And then from that impossible and desirable future, they work backwards to figure out the math and science to make it become real. Magicians might use string or mirrors or whatever they do. Entrepreneurs might use an AI algorithm or some kind of code or technology breakthrough. But the idea is the same. You have to figure out how do you get to an impossible place through math and science. And then, of course, pitching Uh, when you're an, uh, an entrepreneur pitching to investors, to customers, and to employees, almost is like a magic show. If you want to inspire, it, it can't just be about facts. It has to be about surprise. It has to be about emotion. It has to be, a, I have to feel that, wow, this thing is something that I would love to be able to do, or I am amazed by. And as a magician, if you can, you're trying to evoke those emotions, If you can do that well and understand the techniques of how do you make people care, um, well, that works very, very well in, uh, for entrepreneurs as well. But, yeah, I, I think um, magic is a wonderful hobby if you're an entrepreneur, and I spend a lot of time on both. both uh, Adam, it was actually a great chat. Thank you for joining Founders FAQ. I think this will help a lot for the founders who listen to this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for your time. By the way, Founders FAQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey. Whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus themes, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.